Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Makuchi, and you are listening to the Jazzes Podcast. Hello everybody, Jazz is online editor Matt Micucci here, welcoming you to a new episode of our podcast series of conversations with some of the most amazing artists in the jazz and creative music scene today. A series that we simply like to call the Jazz is Podcast and is brought to you in conjunction with Jazz is Vinyl Club, a series of vinyl compilations carefully curated by the Jazz is editors and that is an absolute must for lovers of jazz and vinyl alike. For trumpeter Thomas Heflin, his Tennessee roots have always been a central part of his musical identity. His laid-back playing style mirrors his easygoing personality, and his songs are always inviting, soulful, and melodic. His latest album, Morning Star, released earlier this year, is presented as a late-night radio show, complete with station IDs and a radio DJ and features vocal tracks and instrumentals that flow effortlessly from one to the next. And the music on it is inspired by things that bring him joy and hope. Thomas Heflin joins us to talk about this album and more from his beginnings to present times in our newest episode of the Jazz Is podcast. So fire up an audio teeny and listen to the audio waves as they fly through the air. Hi, Thomas. Welcome to the Jazz Is podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, it's a real pleasure. What part of the world are you speaking to us from? I am speaking to you from Greensboro, North Carolina, where I teach uh, at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. I, well, I'm delighted to speak with you. We're going to be talking about a few things, you know, de- dealing with your career, with your musical journey. You know, I, I want to make sure to also talk about Morningstar, which is your, I guess, latest album was released earlier this year. Uh, but I wanted to begin with with just a little thing that I found out about you while I was preparing preparing for this interview, and I was intrigued about um, because I read that your f- grandfather was a painter and that he passed his passion for the arts to your mother. And uh, was that passion passed down to you, and did it have an impact on your later musical career? Oh, most definitely. My uh, my mother's family were great lovers of the arts. Um, my mother grew up listening to, you know, opera in her house. And yes, uh, my father, uh, my grandfather was a painter. Uh, he was a World War II veteran as well, but uh, he was uh, sort of a painter uh, on the side. His main business was screen process printing. So he, he hand drew decals. So like, you know, in the 1950s, if you wanted a bumper sticker on your car, he would, you know, he would create the font, draw it from hand, you know, create the entire design, print it. It was all done, you know, before computers. So, so yeah, between that and he played the violin as well. And uh, there was just a, a great love of the arts. In fact, now that I'm, I'm thinking about it, 
my first Miles Davis CD came from uh, my grandmother. My first Louis Armstrong record came from them. So, you know, they, they had an impact in ways I'm sort of remembering now as I think about it in terms of being exposed to jazz. My, my grandfather actually told me he uh, saw James P. Johnson's band when he was younger uh, in person. Of course, I didn't know who that was at the time, but uh, uh, he was, you know, he was a great lover of jazz and classical music. That's, that's interesting. Uh, just out of curiosity, did you ever try your hand at becoming a graphic artist or a painter? Uh, yes, I actually am a graphic artist, believe it or not. If you go to my website, you can see some of my my stuff. I, I, it's, I started out of necessity. There was, uh, you know, I needed posters. I needed, uh, album covers for myself. And, you know, I was, you know, in love, of course, with a great, uh, graphic design of the Blue Note era. So I started s- sort of studying that on my own. I have no training. I know no <laughs> theory, but for about 20 years, yeah, I've been doing that on the side, almost exclusively album covers, although I've done some other things, book covers and logos and things like that. So. Very yeah. interesting. I mean, it brings, it takes me back to kind of my, what I was curious about actually. It's, is whether you feel that influence that, do, I mean, do you have a quote unquote graphic approach to music? Is there uh, something about it that influences your musical aesthetics? You know, I'm not sure if it does or not, other than the general sense. And I sense this more as I teach that, um, you kind of have to, you kind of have to follow your instincts in any creative pursuit and uh, not to say you don't do your homework, that you don't train, that you don't, you know, in the case of music, learn all of your scales and all those sort of things. But when, you know, when at the end of the day, when it's time to do the thing that you're trained, you're training to do, you have to kind of go with your gut, so to speak. And as a sort of self-taught graphic designer, uh, and I'm, I'm by no means on the level of some, you know, some people that do this, uh, full time for a living, but uh, it, it's sort of been the same thing that I just go with that that instinct of what looks good. You arrange things in a way that looks right, and in the same way, when you write music, uh, the less second guessing I can do, the the better it tends to turn out. Or when I'm improvising, the same thing. Taking it back to to music, then you know this is a question that I like to ask uh, the artists that I interview for this uh, podcast series is what drew them to their instrument of choice, their primary instrument of choice. So uh, what is it that drew you to the trumpet? Sort of the same thing, a gut instinct. Uh, I was fortunate to have a band director that let us try everything. That's not always the case I hear. You know, people tend to be put on the things that are needed. But I, I actually tried every single instrument. And the two that I gravitated towards were strangely pitched in B flat, the clarinet and the trumpet. And sort of in the same register and the trumpet just, I don't know, it had, it just spoke to me, so to speak. But in fact, I think as a kid, I thought the tuba was cool. So I was planning on playing the tuba, which I'm very glad, nothing against tuba players, but I'm glad I don't have to drag a tuba around. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the tuba is a cool instrument. (laughs) It is. It is. (laughs) But yeah, it's nothing more than that. The trumpet just spoke to me, you know. Yeah, of course. Well, were there any uh, musicians that you looked up to? Uh, in I guess in your in your early years, especially as you were kind of uh, you know just start getting started on the trumpet. Uh, as I was getting started, I probably I'm trying to think back to that time. Um, I probably would have been aware of some of the 
trumpet players that my, that my, those grandparents I mentioned turned me on to. Actually, I remember listening to Clyde McCoy, who you may have never heard of. He was sort of a commercial trumpet player and had a sort of a famous tune called the Sugar Blues, where he, it's like the wah wah mute kind of thing. I, I kind of laugh about it now, but, um, that's something they'd been familiar with, a trumpet player. So they, they gave me the record of Clyde McCoy. But then when I discovered Louis Armstrong, and I think it was a, a sort of a Louis Armstrong greatest hits, you know, compilation that they gave me. That's what really captured my imagination. Yeah. There's something about Louis Armstrong because I think, you know, that's a lot. I mean, I mean, to this day, I feel like he's still, you know, one of the first jazz musicians people get into. It's just a timeless mm-hmm. music that he put out. Uh, yeah, he's universal. Like he's a he's a he's a universal figure. I mean, it's if you're a human being, you can't help but like Louis Armstrong. You know, and I also read something else about you is that uh, this was in the kind of press release that I that I read is that you uh, your Tennessee roots have always been mm-hmm. a central part of your musical identity. It is. It is. Uh, I went to the University of Tennessee as my my undergraduate degree. And while I was there, I, um, I studied or took classes with Donald Brown, who I don't know if you know, was, um, the, for a while, the, uh, pianist with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers during the eighties. And one of the most important, uh, composers, I think of that era of the, the eighties and nineties. And, um, and through him, I sort of discovered the, the rich histories, particularly of Memphis, Tennessee, of piano, uh, people like Phineas Newborn and Harold Mayburn and James Williams, who I later got to know as well, and Mulgrew Miller, and then there were other great musicians, Frank Strozier, Booker Little, you know, the list goes on. But uh, Memphis in particular, although I've never lived there, sort of kind of holds a special place in my heart uh, as having just a, it was just a hotbed of really, really great musicians. The track you're hearing just now is from Thomas Heflin's latest album, Morning Star, released earlier this year on Blue Canoe Records. The music on the album features a traditional jazz group underpinned by layers of Fender Rhodes, Hammond organ and strings, as well as percussion and additional woodwinds to create a warm, soulful sound reminiscent of the CTI recordings of the 1970s. It also fuses elements of modern jazz with R&B, gospel and neo-soul. We'll talk more about the record in the second part of the podcast. And if you love jazz and vinyl, be sure to check out Jazz's Vinyl Club, a new series of vinyl compilations carefully curated by the Jazz's editors and featuring some of the most exciting jazz artists from yesterday and today that we cover in the print version of Jazz's, jazz's.com and these Jazzes podcasts. Go to jazzes.com and click on Join Vinyl Club. But for now, here is the second part of our conversation with trumpeter 
Thomas Heflin. Well, now uh, your Morning Star album that I mentioned earlier, I I, I loved it uh, for the music, but oh, I also appreciated the fact that it's kind of presented like a late night uh, radio. Uh, I just uh-huh. thought that was so great, and even includes oh, you know station IDs and a radio DJ. Now, what what uh, prompted you to kind of pay tribute to the medium? I I love radio, by the way, and and in some ways I even miss radio because I feel like it's not as big a part of my life as I want it to be anymore. But yeah, do do you feel the same way? And and also just yeah, what prompted you to kind of pay tribute to it? It was a bunch of different things. So we recorded the album at the height of COVID. So it had just happened. I think it was a month later and, or no, I'll take that back. It was meant to be, the recording session was meant to be in March. And of course that was where the, the point in time where we knew almost nothing. And then I, uh, I pushed it back later into the summer. Um, but uh, we, we ended up doing the session, you know, of course, in mass and separated and all that kind of stuff. And the orig- the, when I sort of originally thought of the album, it was going to be a little bit more of a traditional jazz album. And then with the separation and all that kind of stuff, I started also experimenting with having more keyboards. And the album sort of lent itself to, uh, I don't know, skewing a little bit more, I don't know, kind of a genre bending thing. And also with COVID, you know, I got a lot of chance to, to add, add things after the fact. So, you know, added percussion, added vocals. Um, things like that. And sort of, uh, Peter Stoltzman, the, the keyboard player on the album added some extra layers of things for me as well. And it sort of turned into this, this music that kind of, I don't know, started making me think of, uh, radio, the radio. I don't know why. One of the things possibly is listening to, you know, Snoop Dogg and George Clinton and people like that who actually sort of tease doing this kind of stuff. And some of their albums, yeah, you know the radio, the radio thing, but also you know just many late nights as a musician um, driving back from gigs, listening to the radio. I don't know if you if you're familiar with Coast to Coast with Art Bell. That was kind of our running joke um, when we were we used to play gigs when I was younger. Is you know you get to listen to Art Bell on the way home, talk about UFOs and Bigfoot and things like that. <laughs> yeah, but that's great. I mean, that's that. I love yeah. that stuff. I love all that stuff. <laughs> So were you kind of imagining what your ideal radio would be would be like, what it would be programmed like? Yeah, I mean, it was honestly just sort of a way to create some cohesion to the album, and I just thought it was fun. I had time during COVID to play with it, so I, I, I put all those, those, you know, radio things together myself uh, just on my laptop. And uh, honestly, it was a, it was a way to just to lengthen the creative process of the album after the recording session. It was just a, it was, it was a good thing to obsess about, you know, uh, during a time when we couldn't play gigs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was a challenging time and, uh, it, it was good. It, it must've been good to have something to kind of keep you, keep you active, keep you focused and maybe even distracted from what was happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did a lot of the mixing on the album, uh, remotely, you know, yeah. the, my best friend, Misha Goldman, who mixed the album, uh, set his, we just, we would we set it up so that we could, you know, he could stream the mix, you know, through, through Pro Tools straight to me with headphones and we just sat and work. We would meet like once a week and work on it. And then in between that, I would kind of work on these radio ID things. And, or if there was something to work out with a vocalist, 
you know, um, remotely, I would do that. So it's, yeah, it was a way to, the, to, <laughs> to drag the fun out a little longer. Yeah, well, it's good too, because I mean, another thing that I read about this album is that the music uh, on it was inspired by things that bring you joy and hope. Right? Mm-hmm. It was, so, yeah, it it's was. It's good to kind of be distracted by joy and hope and positive things. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, the, the, the album title Morning Stars is the sort of translation of my wife's first name. And, um, one of the songs is dedicated to my daughter. And one of the, the other songs is dedicated to a book, I, a book I used to like to read here, kind of an obscure book that was read to me when I was a, a child. So just things like that that mean something to me. Now, in terms of composition, then, is that something that you that is a starting point for you? Or like you, you think of something uh, and then uh, you think of ways in which to represent that, that particular thing in your mind? Or is, uh, it, are they dedications more than, more than anything? It's a little bit of both. Like the, the song I wrote for my daughter was definitely with her in mind from the very beginning. The um, uh, Moon Singer was sort of titled After the Fact because the song actually sort of made me think of the, the story, which was about a, a boy who would go out into the woods and sing these wordless songs into the night and people were captivated by it and would sneak and listen to him sing by himself and he thought he was alone. And so that, that song made me think of the book. But honestly... As far as inspiration, I will take it where I can get it. I sort of, when I'm trying to write something, I come at it from every direction imaginable. I could just write down something that's completely meaningless and try to build off of a, off of that. I could think of something and try to create a, you know, write around a mood. I, I definitely don't, you know, I guess compared to some people have a, a process that I rely on to, to, you know, to compose. I'm, I'm lucky if I can just get it out of my head. Right. Right, right. And and then, of course, you know, I, I also wanted to mention uh, there's one track, Self-Esteem, by James Williams. Mm-hmm. It's the only composition on the album that is not an original composition, I understand. Uh, so was this a tribute to, to Williams? I mean, I, I understand that you studied with him and he was an important part, you know, figure in, in your life. He was. It's, I guess, you know, it was, first of all, a song that I just loved. I loved, I loved the composition. I wanted to have some vocals on the album, so that that fit the bill as well. But sort of the hopeful, you know, the hopeful hopefulness I was trying to convey on the album was sort of something he embodied. He was just the most positive, encouraging person you've ever met. It, it, when I went to his funeral, I realized everyone thought he was a close friend of theirs. He just had that way of making making you feel like he really cared about you, cared about your career, cared about you as a person. He was always going out of his way to do things for people. He would, when we studied William Patterson, he would take people out to sit in with Clark Terry's band. He would hire us for gigs. He, he would, uh, he was on, you know, he was on my first recording session with me. Um, and I spoke with him a week before he died. And instead of talking about himself, he diverted the conversation to telling me I should, you know, keep playing, keep writing music. Of course, at the time, I didn't know that it was going to be the last time I spoke with him or that he knew that. I'm sure he knew that. I just thought he was being James as usual. But now, of course, I think back on it and it makes me tear up every time I think of it. He was just a wonderful person. Yeah. Do you, do you think, you know, uh, the his advice, but also the advice of other uh great artists that you worked with in the past who were kind of mentors to you uh is that why what kind of also made you want to become get into education yourself and kind of maybe pass on your your knowledge and your experience 
Sure, it was certainly that. It was certainly seeing people like him. Uh, but honestly, it's uh, I tell my students this, <clears throat> excuse me, because, you know, s- some of them want to play. They ask about, you know, teaching. And I tell them just to go teach because I think you, you know pretty quickly when you teach whether you whether you enjoy it or not. And I, I sort of started teaching. I was actually hesitant to teach at first. I, don't, I really don't even know why. I just, I, I just, I kind of thought, what do I have to teach anyone, you know? And then uh, once I started doing it, I realized just how fun it was. It's, it's just as fun to me as, as performing. It's just it's seeing someone improve, you know, and to be able to help them do that. So, uh, but certainly seeing certain, seeing people like James Williams was an inspiration as well because he, he went above and beyond. Well, Thomas, I just, uh, it's been fascinating talking with you, but I, I just wanted to know, uh, just to kind of as a final question, if you're working on anything right now at the moment, uh, you got any ambitions that you'd like to see fulfilled, so to speak? <laughs> sure. Um, I've always got, I, I always have ideas. Um, I'm toying with an idea right now with another musician of, of an album that kind of focuses on North Carolina. Now that I, I live here, North Carolina, there are, of course, very famous musicians who are, you know, who are associated with North Carolina from Thelonious Monk to John Coltrane. So there's a lot, there's a, and, and many others, there's a rich musical history, but there are a lot of current players here in North Carolina and, and, um, in other places who grew up in North Carolina that, that, uh, I have sort of ideas about maybe collaborating with. So, I, all I can tell you is there's maybe a sort of a North Carolina theme project in the works, hopefully. Mm, sounds interesting. I will definitely watch this space then. Uh, but in the meantime, Thomas, I thank you very much for joining us. It's been a, it's been yeah. a pleasure. It's been fun. Thanks. enjoyed my conversation with Thomas Heflin on our latest episode of the Jazz Is podcast and I remind you that his latest album Morning Star is available now on Blue Canoe Records and if you love jazz and vinyl be sure to check out our Jazz Is Vinyl Club join the club and we will send you four premium limited edition colour vinyl albums mailed directly to you just go to jazzis.com and click on join vinyl club for more and as music from Morning Star by Thomas Heflin plays us out, I encourage you to keep an eye out for more Jazz's podcasts and more of the excellent content regularly uploaded on jazzes.com. In addition, you may want to check out our Winter 2022 issue with a focus on the art of jazz guitar and where top Jazz's critics revisit some of their favorite 2022 releases. There's a lot of great things happening in the world of jazz is, and of course, if you like what you see on our site, you should know that you can always subscribe for more. Till the next time, this is Matt McCucci signing off. See you soon. (laughs) 